Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Legal Glass Ceilings. It gives me enormous pleasure to welcome you and to welcome Mary Jo Wiggins to the podcast this afternoon. Mary Jo and I met in San Diego when I went earlier this year to start a bicycle ride that was hopefully going across the United States, but kind of got interrupted by some uh, dogs when we were attacked in the Texas desert, but there, that's another story. But it was a pleasure to see Mary Jo, meet some of her students. Mary Jo is a very distinguished professor at the University of San Diego and teaches in the School of Law, was previously the Dean of the School of Law, has also experience as a practicing lawyer. Mary Jo, welcome to Legal Glass Ceilings. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Mary Jo, can I start by asking you what made you maybe a few years ago, decide to enter the law as a profession? Oh, well, David, it was a long time ago now. Thank you for uh, for that generous interpretation of the chronology. <laughs> Let's see. I grew up in a household in which there were constant references to and discussions of the law. The reason for that is my father, who's now deceased, was a minister and was in around that time in the early 60s, very active in the civil rights movement in the United States. And he was a community leader and the influence of in the interaction of the law, the constraints of the law at the time, segregation, you know, very obvious racism was something that he was committed to fighting. And so the notion of law as a force and as a positive force for change uh, was something that we talked about all of the time. My, both of my parents were also very politically oriented. And so we always had discussions about politics and government and the law. And I think it just got into my brain somehow that, that law was a, a force for good, as I said before, and, and could be a force for change. Also, my maternal grandfather was one of the first corporate lawyers, African-American corporate lawyers in the United States. And so he was a lawyer and my mother had been raised in a household in which her father was a lawyer. It was an extraordinarily unique situation. His name was Clarence Robinson and my dad's name was Ernest Newborn. My mother's name was Janice Newborn. But I think just growing up in this, in this place, in this time where I was exposed to not the mechanics of law practice and not even necessarily a path to the law, but just the notion of law's effect on society and on people, it was in the air. It was something that was ever present. So I think that's what probably sparked my initial interest. That's really interesting because that's so different from so many people's entering into law. They want to make a lot of money. They have a prestigious career. They want to become a high court judge. Whereas your emphasis was on how the law can be used Absolutely. to effect change and to, and to deliver justice for those without economic power. Exactly. As a philosophy, therefore, is it fair to say that you were focusing on two things? First of all, was the frustration that those without economic power found that they couldn't exercise their legal rights, uh, legal rights without the ability to exercise it are as useful as a chocolate teapot. And secondly, that there were big areas where 
there needs to be campaigns to use, to change the law, to allow people with economic power not to unjustly exercise that power to exploit others. Both of those parts of what you were concerned with. Definitely. My interest in pursuing law was more of a social justice and public policy focus. It wasn't really about making a lot of money. It was about gaining education, knowledge, and training that would enable me and enable my students to make meaningful change. And it's interesting because when I went from law school to the world of practice, I didn't pursue public interest jobs. I went straight corporate. Right? I went to a large corporate law firm and practiced corporate law, but my initial interest in the law was definitely sparked by an, a, a sense that law could be made to, uh, the law could be used as an instrument for progress. To this day, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure where the disconnect came in, right? <laughs> I'm not quite sure why I didn't go more sort of in the public interest and public law route, but I just didn't. Looking back on it, I think maybe one explanation for that is that I came through law school at a time when the field of private law and corporate law was just beginning to open up for women of color, for people of color. And I, I think in in many people in my situation felt it was important to take advantage of any opportunity that came available to us, be it in public law or private law, right? So that when large law firms in the United States started hiring folks like me and giving us the opportunity to gain that credential and gain that experience, I said, well, why not? Why not see what it's like to practice corporate law, get a, get a window into that opportunity? And then, of course, I can in, in many different directions. And uh, my parents were very, very proud of my choice to, in some ways, take a little bit of a different path than they did. And that's something I find interesting. It's a bit of a paradox. You may start out in a career being motivated by one set of values, but then when you get choices put before you, you make other types of choices and you go on other paths. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just part of the journey. You're breaking a glass ceiling in terms of being a black woman entering what was previously a world that was de facto closed to previous generations of black women, I suspect black men as well. Correct. Correct. But there came a time when you decided to go into teaching and research to the university sector rather than stay in corporate law. Tell me about what motivated that decision. Well, I think that this is also another dimension of my of my upbringing, along with my father being a minister and my upbringing of being immersed in legal issues. Both my parents were avid readers, and there were always a lot of conversations in our house about intellectual matters. I used to have arguments and debates with my father in particular about many issues all of the time. And my father was a very thoughtful, reflective, and I would say intellectual type of person. So I was encouraged from a young age to be curious, to question almost any set of ideas (laughs) that were put in front of me. 
So I think that was another angle to my upbringing that sensitized me to an academic mindset. So when I was in college, I majored in political science and African-American studies. I went to a small women's college in Massachusetts, in Northampton, Massachusetts, called Smith College. It's a very, very selective, highly academic environment. And I had several professors that were extremely, extremely interested in my intellectual development and really encouraged me to feed my intellect, to be deeply thoughtful about what I was learning, not take things at at face value, and imbued me with a lot of confidence that I had a a great mind. (laughs) So it's like, that's the only way I could put it. And, And they get all the credit for that. So when I was in college, I thought, I think I might want to be one of these professors. I think I might want to teach undergrad political science. So I thought about getting a PhD in political science and going that route. Interestingly enough, though, these professors that I had grown close to thought, you know what, I think you'd be really good going to law school. Coming back to what we were saying before, they said, oh, you'll probably make a lot more money, (laughs) right? And going to law school may give you more options. So why don't you think seriously about law school? I decided to go to law school instead of getting a PhD, but I never, even while I was in law school, I never really let go of that idea that I might at one point like to be a professor and pursue academic law instead of the practice of law. So my third year of law school, I went to see some of my law school professors and asked them what they thought. They almost uniformly said, you'd be a great academic you have the right mind, you have the right way of looking at the world, you're a hard worker, you know, you'll be a great academic, but if you want to do academic law, you really should practice, get some real practical experience, see what that's like, and then make a transition. So I practiced for several years and then decided that I wanted to make the switch to academic law and interviewed with a bunch of law schools in the United States, people who want to teach law cast their lot with a bunch of law schools. You you have kind of like mini interviews with the schools. Then you go on campus to interview with schools. And that's the process that I followed. And that's how I ended up at the University of San Diego. And I've been there for 32 years. And I've been extremely happy pursuing academic law as a career. And your law professors were right, because not only have you found it satisfying for yourself, but you've had a stellar career which has been recognized in all sorts of ways outside of the university. I'm not going to go through all the, the accolades and, and achievements because that would take up the rest of the podcast. But um, <laughs> our listeners can be assured that you have been enormously well recognized. You've been named as a, a woman of vision in the law. And there must be generations of students who have benefited from your wisdom, your insights, and, and been inspired by you. I think you're right. <laughs> not, not to be um, non-humble, but I have been told that I've inspired a, many, many students throughout the years, and it's a great source of joy. And it is one of the most rewarding parts of being an academic is that every year I get a new crop of folks that I can help, that I can inspire, that I can work with to help them achieve their goals and to show them what's possible. There's a constant recycling and reinvention of that 
possibility every year. It's a tantalizing prospect. Every once in a while, I'll get emails from students that I taught 20, 10, 15 years ago, and they'll say, Professor Wiggins, I won a trial, or I got a great result for a client, or I was just thinking about you, and I was thinking about how hard I worked in your class and how the work that I did in your class is helping me today. Yeah, I can see that. Can I ask this question? Academic law is one way to be a successful lawyer. There are other ways. Litigation law, there's non-contentious law, there's judicial route, but academic law is one of them. If you've got somebody who's listening to this who's thinking, I, I kind of fancy trying academic law as a career, what do you think are the, the things they should be looking in the mirror to see whether they possess to understand whether that's the right thing for them? Yeah, so that's a good question. I think there are several things. Academic law is a type of law that places a great deal of reliance on working independently, and in some sense, working in a quite solitary manner. That is, when I'm working on a paper, of course, I get to the stage where the paper's finished and I circulate the paper to colleagues, or I send the paper to a colleague, or I might present the paper to a group. And that is an exchange where I'm interacting with people. But while I'm constructing the ideas for the paper, while I'm putting the paper together, while I'm writing and rewriting the paper, I'm spending a lot of time alone. That's 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 really interesting because that's not dissimilar to what happens when you become a senior barrister. I get sent a set of papers and told to sit in a dark room with a towel on my head for two days trying to work out what the answer is on my own. And occasionally I'll ring up a colleague and say, you know, I haven't got a big enough brain to tell me what the answer is. But most of the time, I'm just sitting there trying to work out this three-dimensional jigsaw to try and find out what the answer is. It sounds not dis... And then to write a detailed advice, setting out my conclusions. It sounds, in a funny way, a fairly similar process if you're developing an academic paper. I think it is similar. I, it, it does sound similar. I would, I would compare that, though, and contrast that, though, with let's say you are a mid-level attorney in a law firm in the United States. Maybe the, This is maybe a little bit pre-COVID because now folks are doing more remote work. Or let's say you're a public defender, or let's say you're a district attorney, or one of those jobs. In those jobs, you do tend to have more of a give and take with other lawyers throughout your day and more of a give and take with folks who may be the paralegals or court staff or folks like that. That is different than what you'll have as an academic. And as an academic, I think I, I, would, I would venture that the isolation is probably a little bit more accentuated them from what you were just talking about, because it sounds like what you were just, you were talking about is someone will give you this really complex, hard puzzle that needs to be solved. They know you can um, solve it or at least get halfway to solving it. And so they say, okay, David, go sit in a room by yourself, put the towel over your head. We know after what you said, maybe two or three days, you're going to come out. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I've been working on a paper pretty much by myself now for four or five months. 
where I haven't really interacted with anyone else around substantively around that paper yet. Now I said, it won't be that way forever because uh, the best academic papers don't necessarily come from just, you know, complete isolation. We're not like monks or something, but there is quite a bit of solitary work to be done. So if you're a person who wants to be around a lot of people all the time and wants to be interacting with people throughout your day. Those people could be people that are below you in status, right? Like I said, receptionists or paralegals, right? Or those people could be people that are equal to you in professional status. They could be co-counsel, right? Or those people are pe- those people could be judges, that if you're doing a motion practice in the United States and you're in front of court and you're in court a lot, then you're going to be, you're going to have that constant interaction. And there are people who, for whom that is a great talent to be able to interact with and sort of go throughout the course of one's day, having that one-on-one human interaction. And, and I'm not saying we don't have that as academics. We, we do have that, but it, it's not as frequent. It's not as sustained. And there are just a lot of times when we do have to, by the nature of our work, do it in solitary. Now, another aspect of being a good academic, and, and some of this gets downplayed in American law schools today when there's so much more emphasis on research, but teaching is a big part of our job. And in teaching, one is necessarily working with students who have much less training, knowledge, sophistication, very experienced than we do. So what I find, patience is really important. If you want to be a good academic, teaching is, especially in the early years, a big part of what you're going to be doing. And you're going to therefore be teaching young people, people who, as I said, are not at the level of maturity, understanding, and knowledge that you are. And so you have to be patient. When I was um, the vice dean at USD, and I was actually the vice dean, not the dean. So I don't want people to think I you know, took on more power or whatever. But when I was, when I was the vice dean, I was responsible for hiring our part-time faculty. And yep. our part-time faculty come from the ranks of corporate law firm partners of the biggest firms here in San Diego and sometimes nationwide. And they are outstanding lawyers, but sometimes they would come into the classroom and they wouldn't last long in the classroom teaching young law students. Why? Because they didn't have the patience to be instructors. Do you see what I'm saying here? I I, I think what you're saying to me is, don't think of an academic unless, first of all, you like students because you're going to yes. spend a lot of time with them. You're going to like people between the ages of 20 and 25, 30. You know, you're going to like that group of you people. Do. If you don't like them, then you're setting yourself up to fail. Secondly, you've got to be able to deal with inequality of knowledge and experience. Your job is to pass on exactly uh, in a gentle, non-threatening, non-irritated way. And some people have got those skills, some people can develop them, and others never get there. <laughs> so if you right. never get that category, academia is probably not for you. Is that right. fair? I think that's very fair. You said it better than I did. I also <laughs> think that people who do well in academia are people who can stay open to ambiguity. 
and stay open to the possibility that not every question is going to have a fine point answer. Not every question can be answered in the moment. Not every question can be answered even in the next five years, right? That there's this constant generation of very difficult questions, very questions that are very difficult to answer. Of course, in any legal system, they're going to be, when you encounter them in your work, there are questions for which there's clearly a right and wrong answer. Yep. There's, it's like part of the legal system. The legal system has to thrive on certainty and answerable questions in order to have people rely on the system. Yeah, but they're not the interesting ones, are they? Exactly. The interesting ones are are where the tectonic plates of interest and legitimate interest clash and where judges have to deal with the resolution of these really difficult. And it does seem to me that another thing you need to be as an academic is an ability to deal with far more complex legal issues than you would probably have to deal with day to day as a practicing lawyer. Absolutely. Because that's the stuff that's interesting, both in research and in the end, is the stuff that you're going to have to teach about. Because we don't teach about the cases that are straightforward and simple. We teach teach about the cases that are difficult and interesting. (laughs) Right. So curiosity is so central to what it means to be an academic Um, You have to be endlessly curious and also comfortable with the prospect of not having pat answers and not finding them (laughs) and uh, not necessarily being able to articulate very clear answers in every situation. So I think those would be a couple of things I would say that if, if, if you have those interests and qualities, being an academic would fit with you. If you don't, it's probably going to be a bit more of a struggle. Yeah, well, I, that, that, I think that's really useful advice for anyone who's thinking that maybe the academic route is, is their career. It seems to me to sum up you, what you're saying is you've got to be a self-starter. You've got to work by yourself. You've got to be happy in your own company. You've got to be intellectually curious. You've got to live with the uncertainty of the difficult. You've got to like students as a group, and you've got to be able to interact with them and gently bring them along, as opposed to getting irritated by their lack of knowledge. That's a fair set of skills that you need to be a successful academic. I can see how we met you. I can see how you've got them in in spades. But for somebody who's coming along, that's quite a checklist. Well, I think the other thing I would say is you don't have to have them all at once. And you don't have to have all of that at the very beginning. These insights that I've generated are the hard-won insights of 32 years. They're not things that I necessarily understood when I first began teaching. For example, take the element of patience. My patience has definitely grown over the years. I started teaching when I was 28. And one would think that it's, it's rather ironic. I was often only a few years older than my students, sometimes younger than my students, depending on the particular mix of the cohort age-wise. And one would think that at that time, in that situation, I would be very patient with students because I was more like them. 
But what I find looking back is that I wasn't nearly as patient as I needed to be with the students back then. I was not always sympathetic to what they were going through or empathetic of what they were going through. And it made me a less effective teacher. Over time, my patience has grown and my empathy has grown for what they're going through. That's what I would say about that, right? There's the possibility of growth. There's the possibility of maturing yourself as a professional. So when you check off that laundry list, someone who might be interested in pursuing academic law, if you don't have all five of those things, four or five, I don't remember how many there were, but if if you don't have all of them on day one, that's okay. I think if you have two of them, probably the, mo- the two most important are that intellectual curiosity, comfort with ambiguity. That's probably the most important thing. The others you can adapt to, you can grow into over time. Yeah, that's, I, I completely agree. I, I think I'm more patient with judges who don't understand me, I'm more sympathetic to the position where they are faced with this argument that I've lived with for months and they're having to come to it first first off. And we learn patience and we learn sympathy and it makes us a better professional. Can I ask you a second point, which is this, for those of your students who have not grown up in a legal environment, who are not the 14th generation of their family to go to law school, whose fathers are not senior judges or partners in law firms, but are coming to this for the first time. What do you see as the characteristics that have made your former students successful lawyers? And where are the hurdles where they've fallen when they're not from an environment which educated them from an early stage in what they have to do to be a successful professional? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that the students who I see who come from non-traditional backgrounds who succeed despite that seem to have a few qualities or habits of mind or practices that they follow, a lot of different things. I think probably one of the things that they tend to do is they just stay open. They stay open to opportunities that are put before them. They stay open. So for example, at the law school, we have in the fall and the spring, um, a reception for where we invite local judges from the San Diego area up to our campus to meet our students. And I teach first year students in the spring and I see students from non-traditional backgrounds who come to that judicial reception to meet our local judges. And almost to a man or woman, the students who come to that reception to meet our judges And these are students from non-traditional backgrounds. Sometimes I don't know a lot about them, but sometimes it it might be our students of color or it might be a student who's a white student. But I just I know because they've told me that they're the first person in their family to go to law school. They come to the reception. They mingle with the judges. They get to know these judges. And oftentimes it leads to them being able to get clerkships with these judges just because they came to this reception and they met Judge X or Judge Y or Judge Z. Then sometimes I'll talk to students afterwards who are from non-traditional backgrounds and they'll say, oh, I didn't want to go to that reception because I've never met a judge before. I don't know what I would do if I, if I met a judge. I wouldn't know how to address them. 
I wouldn't, I would be worried that I might say something stupid, or I might say something silly, or I might, I might feel awkward around them, right? So the students who are sort of in the same cohort, non, from non-traditional backgrounds, one student comes to this reception and starts gaining a network of people in the profession who can help them achieve their goals. The other student doesn't come because they feel they, they feel, feel limited. They, they, yeah, they, they, feel, they like feel like they haven't got the tools to, yeah, to, like, to function. Yeah, yeah, like they're going to be a fish out of water. Yeah. But by not going to that reception, by not staying open, they're limiting their opportunities. Now, we know there are structural barriers to advancement in all kinds of professions. And I'm not saying that, oh, well, if you go to one reception, you're going to end up being Clarence Thomas or something. That's not what I'm saying. You might not uh, want to be Clarence Thomas. <laughs> well, that's true. But uh, the... Staying open to opportunities that are put before you to gain a network and to gain skills of networking and making small talk and, you know, gaining connections. That's really interesting because being English, I use slightly different language. You've got to have the confidence to take a few risks. Yeah. You might end up looking foolish or you might succeed the one thing you can be sure about in the lottery of life is if you don't buy a ticket, you don't win the prize. <laughs> oh, so. absolutely. And I can relate this to my own experience. After I had been in practice for a few years, I announced to my parents that I wanted to pursue a career in academia. At that point, I was making good money at a private law firm. And my parents were sort of looking at me like, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to become a professor? you're going to have to take a pay cut. You'll probably have to move. I had people in my law firm saying, are you sure you want to do this? You'll probably have to take a pay cut. You'll probably have to move. While I'm very confident now that I, I have those habits of mind and those skills that we talked about before, I had my own doubts about whether I could be successful in academia, but I really just said, this is what I want to do. Yep. You know, confidence has a lot to do with it. So I think having that confidence that internal resolve, that internal fortitude, say, I'm going to take a risk, go out there and see what happens. That's a big part of being successful as a student from a non-traditional background. There's also an element of, I don't know whether this language translates, but we would say, you got to learn to wing it. <laughs> you got to learn to overcome the imposter syndrome and understand that actually the judge has probably got just as much imposter syndrome as you have. Um, I, mean, I, I, was, I was sitting on the high court bench yesterday in England. I was there with my wig and gown in the Royal Courts of Justice. And at one point it suddenly occurred to me, what are you doing here? How do you, how could you possibly pretend to be a, a high court judge? And I wonder whether some of our students realize that even when you're successful in the profession, those who really, really work hard, those who are really focused, those who have been successful, still have an element of imposter syndrome. So don't think that you're alone in having this. Oh, I think that's such an important message. And I try to convey that to my students, particularly if they're from a non-traditional background. And, and a lot of times the way it'll play out is I teach first-year students in the spring. I have a big group of students. I usually have between 85 and 90 students in the section. And the first day, I really put the students through the paces. I asked them a lot of difficult questions about the case uh, before us that day. 
sorting out the terminology, taking the rule out of the case, applying the rule to hypotheticals. And I really put the students through the paces. And I will invariably have a student come in right after that class and say, wow, I couldn't answer very many of those questions, Professor Wiggins. I don't know how I'm going to survive in law school. And I will just say to them, you do realize virtually no one in the class knew the answers. The whole point of coming to class is for me to ask you questions that are difficult. And of course, there's a hierarchy. There's going to be some questions that are at trial who won. Was it the plaintiff or the defendant? Well, that's an easy one. It says in the book, the plaintiff won. So that's easy. But we escalate to an increasingly complex level of questions. And by the end of the class, I would venture to say that out of 90 students, there may be two or three who feel like they have a grasp, but there's a whole bunch who don't. So I always say, don't assume that you were the only one who didn't know the answer to that. Assume exactly the opposite, really. Assume that I'm pitching the level of question such that most students aren't going to get the answer right the very first time. And that's the point of having class so that you can be challenged, so that you can learn. And so don't feel like an imposter. I guarantee you, everybody else was struggling too. They may not appear to be struggling because they've probably been socialized through the educational system, through their family system, through the experiences they've had to be able to cover it really well. But they are engaged in the same kind of struggle that you are at the intellectual level. So don't be put off by false confidence, false bravado that your classmates are exhibiting. We're all struggling. And I don't usually do this at the very start of the class, but towards the end of the class, I will tell the students, law is an extremely hard discipline, body of knowledge to master. I'm still working at it. I'm still trying to figure it out after 36 years now in the law. And I know you too, David, like sometimes you have times when you're just trying to figure this out after all of these years, this is a lifelong animal that we're trying to tame. And some days we get it right. Some days we get it wrong, but it is so hard. So I always tell students, particularly students that come in to me that don't have a lot of socialization in the law, don't give up, keep at it. And it's hard for everybody. Yep. And if your colleague thinks that the question is easy and they know the answer, the chances are they haven't understood the question. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Major, I've got two questions to come to then. The first is, what was the best piece of advice you received in connection with the practice of law or teaching law? So I, I've been reflecting on this question. Of course, I had uh, wonderful parents and great teachers great professors through my educational and, and personal family journey. I've received a lot of advice over the years and uh, I've incorporated a lot of it and it's really helped me. But you know, one piece of advice that I wouldn't say I received it, but I located it <laughs> and discovered it and it's really stuck with me. There's a judge 
an African-American judge named Harry Edwards. He was one of the first African-American federal judges to be appointed to the federal bench. And he is a graduate of the University of Michigan Law School, where I went. When I was a young lawyer, or maybe when I first started teaching, I can't remember, remember the exact time I read this. He wrote an essay for a law review, and he wrote something to the effect that as a successful legal professional, one bit of advice that he would give to others is not to be a slave to the performance standards of others, but to set your own performance standard that you bring to bear in what you do. Of course, as legal professionals, there are standards out there that influence how we view results, right? There are wins, there are losses, there are articles that I, or papers that I submit to journals and the journal says we accept this or we don't, right? So there are going to be those uh, determinations, but we shouldn't be a slave to those determinations. The way I've incorporated that advice into my own career is I try to set up my own conception of what it means to bring my best to a situation, right? Yep. So have I created the right work environment to be productive in that day? Have I set ambitious goals for myself for the day? Have I accomplished what I set out to accomplish even that week? Did I kind of do what I set out to do? And that way, by setting my own performance standards, I'm the captain of my own ship. And I'm not being tossed by someone else's standard, by someone else determining how well I've done. As I said before, and I, and, and I tell my students, you can't determine your own grade, right? The professor determines your grade based on your performance. So there's going to be a reducible label, right? I got a A in Professor Wiggins' course, or I got a B in Professor Wiggins' course. But that demarcation shouldn't determine exclusively kind of how you feel about that experience, right? Did you work hard in Professor Wiggins' course? Did you put forward the maximum amount of effort? Did you work really hard to understand property law and to figure out the categories and to figure out the definitions and how those rules apply to new situations. Did you do that to the best of your ability? Did you do that commensurate with what goals you had? If you did that, you got to let the rest go because there's only so much control you have over any particular outcome. And there's no reason why you should let your estimation of the value of any given experience be hostage to someone else's goals or someone else's standards. That's a long way of saying that's probably the best advice I've received. Is yeah, interesting. I think that's really important, really important. And do you pass that on to your students to try and encourage them to define for themselves what success looks like? I do. I really, I really do. I tell my students I love to give advice. <laughs> I love to give advice. Students come to me seeking advice. And I love that. I get a real thrill out of helping them navigate, you know, this very tricky path to try to avoid some pitfalls when the inevitable pitfalls come to kind of help them figure out a way to get out of it. 
And some of the most rewarding interactions I have with students is in the wake of a disappointment. So I sit down with them. I talk about how what they did in my class kind of translated to maybe a a disappointing result, but what they can learn from that. They've got two more years of law school, how they can use this disappointment to rebound and to improve. That's a life lesson because we, we are defined throughout our careers far more by how we come back from setbacks Absolutely. And from apparently effortless success. That's been a a feature of of the advice I give to students, to junior practitioners, and indeed my own professional career, marked by success and, of course, failures. But it's how we we bounce back from them, what we learn, and sometimes just have to accept it's a legal case. Somebody wins, somebody loses, and learn the lessons. But don't think that it's personal, because it can't be personal. Um, Thank you so much for the time this afternoon. It's been fascinating. It's been a privilege. And I'm sure that those who are listening to this podcast will just wish that they had the opportunity of being in Professor Wiggins's class, which is only available to a small number. But through this, you've passed on a vast amount of wisdom. And those who are listening, I'm sure, will be enormously grateful. Well, thank you for the privilege, too. It's been absolutely wonderful. I can't thank you enough for this opportunity to reach more students and to help make our profession better across the pond as well. (laughs) Thank you very much. They'll be be queuing up to apply to San Diego School of Law. Uh, Wonderful. Thank you very much and good afternoon. Take care. Bye-bye. 